0: Would you describe yourself as a contented person? Is your heart and your life marked by contentment? Or is this as much a struggle for you as it is for most of the rest of us? What are the things that you regularly find yourself longing for? That if only this or that would happen, or if only I had such and such, or if, if, if only I could get to this state, this set of circumstances, well then... I would be content. Most people living in our culture are inundated daily with, with commercials and advertisements designed to communicate to you that you couldn't possibly be content without this or, or that product that you don't have. Marketing is all about breeding discontentment. And then television shows and, and films and magazines, they tell you that you, you couldn't possibly be content without a certain set of circumstances that you probably don't have. Circumstances that not only involve worldly success, but also involve unrealistic, self-absorbed relationships with others that revolve around you and around your discovery and expression of the real, true-to-yourself you. You couldn't possibly be content until you surrender yourself to the quest to follow your heart and succeed in living your dream. And then polished social media accounts, as you scroll and scroll and scroll, they they tell you that nearly everyone you know has found contentment in things and in relationships, convincing you that you're the only one who is falling short. And the news, the news tells you that you couldn't possibly be content, given, given all the, the malevolent forces conspiring to oppress you, and that the path to contentment is to give more power to your political saviors. But until then, you will be discontent. Our culture is sick, and it breathes discontentment. Drug addiction and death by overdose are continuing to skyrocket. The rate of suicide by means other than drugs continues to rise as well, and as does the rate of severe depression. So is discontentment a struggle for you? It could be a struggle with materialism or desire for acclaim and fame could be a struggle with the desire for ease and comfort or security. Or maybe, maybe your discontentment is a matter of longing for the well-being of certain loved ones who can't seem to stay on the right track. A good desire. Or maybe it's a, a matter of longing for certain fruit in gospel ministry that just hasn't yet blossomed. Good, godly desires, when left unmet, can leave you discontented. So is there a way for good, godly desires to be left unmet, and yet to still find contentment? What is the secret of contentment? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. You can find it on page 199 in the second half of the Pew Bible. Philippians 4, verse 10. And though I printed on the bulletin and in the newsletter that we'd finished the letter today, that's not actually going to happen until next week, as we're going to only get through verse 13 this week, so sorry about the false advertising. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord to you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. We pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would apply your word to our hearts, that we may know how to be brought low and how to abound. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in verses 10 through 18 here, Paul is thanking the Philippians for gifts, presumably financial gifts, that they had just sent to him to help provide for his needs during his current imprisonment in Rome. So we read this in verse 18. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. See, again, in a Roman prison, whether you were confined to a jail cell or or whether you were simply chained to a guard while under house arrest, which appears to be the case for Paul in this imprisonment, you you normally weren't provided any food or clothing. And the end of the book of Acts tells us that 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 was the case for Paul during this imprisonment. He, He was sustained at his own expense while under guard, it says. So if he didn't have acquaintances to to bring him provisions, he would not have survived. Which is why it was so important that Timothy remain in Rome with Paul, as he noted earlier in the letter. He couldn't send Timothy back to them, but he was sending Epaphroditus back. The first half of verse 10 falls a little odd on our ears. It doesn't quite sound like the kind of thank you that we would expect, given given our, our modern Western sensibilities. Apparently, there had been some extended period of time when the Philippians had stopped providing Paul material support. And so he writes in verse 10, I rejoice to the Lord greatly that now at length or or at last you have revived your concern for me. Sounds in English almost like a kind of backhanded thank you, but there are a few things to note. One, not every culture has the same conventions for expressing thanks and theirs was certainly a different culture than ours. Two, Paul frequently speaks of rejoicing, but this is the only place in all of Paul's writings that he includes an intensifier, saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, making his joy quite emphatic. That's the emphasis. And third, Paul immediately clarifies that this is not a backhanded expression of gratitude, for he writes, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity That is no opportunity to provide support that they had earlier provided and have now returned. But what does that mean? Why didn't they have the opportunity? Well, we're not told. Perhaps Paul hadn't been in need of support for a season until now. Perhaps the Philippians hadn't been aware of where Paul was, or or how long he'd be there, or how to go about sending someone to carry the provision to him. Perhaps they simply didn't have the means until recently. Regardless, Paul says that he doesn't doubt that they had continued to be concerned for him. Notice that Paul greatly rejoiced in the Lord. He rejoiced in the Lord regarding this reviving of their concern. It's certainly instructive for us to to give praise to God for every gift and to delight more in the ultimate giver of the gift than the gift itself. That's instructive for us, but as Paul will further elaborate later on, His rejoicing is actually less about the gift and about the benefit that it is to him and his needs. His joy is more about what the giving of the gift says about the church's walk with the Lord in Philippi. The Philippians bring Paul far more joy than any material gift ever could. For Paul, people are far better sources of joy than things. Paul loves people, not things as much as anything else, that is what this letter is meant to instill in us. A love for one another and the ability to find our joy in laboring together as we advance the gospel. He continues verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, Well, part of what he seems to mean by that phrase is that he doesn't need them to send any further provision. He's going to make that clear in verse 18. He doesn't need them to send any more. But he's also taking a moment here to transition to the topic of Christian contentment. He rejoiced greatly that they had sent him provision, but he wants them to understand that even in terrible need, the Christian can still experience contentment. For contentment should not be dependent on circumstances. Verse 11 continues, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what's the secret? Well, he'll get to that in the next verse, verse 13. But but first notice something striking about verse 12. He doesn't simply say that he has learned the secret of how to be brought low, of how to face hunger and need. He says he has learned the secret of how to abound, of how to face plenty and abundance. Notice that this cuts against the grain of the lies taught by our culture, which glamorizes wealth and and the good life, as though wealthy people don't struggle with contentment. They do. In the offertory message last Sunday, Sandy Rutherford shared about John D. Rockefeller's severe discontentment for much of his life, despite quite possibly being the richest man in the history of the world, even to this point today. There are so many other examples we can point to from, from the headlines and from tabloids and from history, but if you really want an authority on the subject to pull back the curtain on the claim that money can buy happiness and contentment, just read Ecclesiastes, particularly chapter 2, 5, and 6. Sit under the tutelage of koheleth the preacher, He will tell you that money cannot buy happiness. He knew it by experience. Not everyone who experiences abundance can say that they know how to abound. That they know how to to be satisfied with what they have instead of always thirsting for more. That they know how to be faithful with what has been entrusted to them instead of being sinfully indulgent. That they know how not to worship the gift of wealth instead of the giver of wealth. Jesus went so far as to say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 25. Wealth can be exceedingly dangerous to your soul. At the end of 40 years of wandering through the wilderness for the Israelites, as the Lord was about to allow the new generation to finally enter into the promised land, God explained to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, That he had done good to them by letting them experience hunger in the wilderness. Always having just enough. That they might know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He had done good to them by letting them hunger. And then he warns them of what's about to happen. Deuteronomy 8 verse 11. He says, take care lest when you have eaten and are full. And have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, take care lest your hearts be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth." You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship uh, them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. And of course, they did forget the Lord and went after other gods and perished. But Paul, Paul had learned how to abound. And he had learned how to be brought low. And he had certainly been brought low after committing to follow Jesus. And not just in this current multi-year imprisonment. Before Several years before this imprisonment, hear how he records his life of following Jesus in 2 Corinthians 11. He speaks of countless beatings, often near death. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and at day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's his life of following Jesus. And yet through this, he had learned the secret of contentment. Namely, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Talk about a verse that can be easily ripped out of its context. Does this mean that I can achieve anything I put my mind to and set my heart upon? So long as I chant, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. So long as I acknowledge my need for God's strength to achieve it. So long as I pray and work hard and and write Philippians 4.13 under the brim of my ball cap, should I expect to be able to make the starting lineup of the Texas Rangers this year? I mean, it says I can do all things, right? Does it mean that if I just persevere in believing I can overcome every obstacle, that I can overcome terminal, untreatable cancer in this life? No. Paul was in chains as he wrote this and eventually was executed for his faith. As Paul and so many others have discovered, this secret is not about achieving every dream or satisfying every desire. The secret is about being content, content, even with dreadful circumstances, even circumstances leading to painful death. The glorious, peace-giving, soul-satisfying truth of Philippians 4.13 is that I can do, do all things that God sets before me, each and every objective that he determines for my life no matter how trying the surrounding circumstances may be, for he will work through me to accomplish his good purposes. The secret of Philippians 4.13, it's, it's a multifaceted gem. One of the largest, brightest facets of this gem is the, is the supernatural inner strength that God provides to those who know him and, and know to seek this strength that only he can provide. This, of course, builds on the supernatural peace of God which surpasses all understanding and is able to guard the hearts and minds of those who pray for it when struggling with anxiety. That's what we read the first half of the chapter last week. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding can guard your hearts and your minds if you will pray for it. Well this, this supernatural inner strength to face every obstacle with contentment builds on that concept. God works peace and strength in the hearts of his people when they walk in conscious dependence upon him. All of this is part of what Paul meant in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God supernaturally working in you is, is one facet of this gem of contentment. But an equally important facet of this beautiful gem, of this secret, is understanding that it's all about his good pleasure, not ours. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, he summarizes this point with this line in one of his sermons on this text. He says Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be entirely at his disposal. I say that again Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be entirely at his disposal. If you want to experience the joy-filled contentment and peace that Paul discovered, you must walk the path that Paul walked. Recall how he identified himself in the very first four words of the letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's the secret. Seeing nothing as more integral to your identity than your identification as a humble servant of Christ. Seeing nothing as more honorable and desirable than to live for him, no no longer living for yourself. Of course, this really gets back to the message of chapter 3 at the heart of the letter. The path to contentment requires diligently striving to know Christ more fully and intimately. Right, Because the more that we know Christ, the more that we love him. The more that we love him, the more we desire to please him, to be made increasingly like him. And thus, the the stronger our resolve to to put aside our own interests in favor of his interests, fully submitting to him as Lord. The more we know Christ, the more we love him. The more we know Christ, the more we treasure him above all the pleasures that this world could offer, none of which can ultimately satisfy. And thus, Paul can count everything else as rubbish, he says in chapter 3. The more we know Christ, the more we love him. The more we know Christ, the more we treasure him. The more we know Christ the more we trust him, the more we trust God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's this trust in God that is absolutely crucial for contentment in this life. And we don't have to leave this letter in order to see reasons for trusting God, even when we don't understand what he's doing. Again, think of how God had used these seemingly disastrous circumstances of the imprisonment of the world's greatest missionary. Paul wrote in chapter one, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Not only were, were Christians emboldened by Paul's steadfastness in the face of persecution, bearing fruit for the gospel. But as we'll see in verse 22 of chapter 4, because of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel had penetrated Caesar's own household. Regardless of whether any Caesar's family members had yet been converted, clearly others that could be described as being of the household of Caesar had been converted. All because of the gospel being proclaimed to the imperial guards, keeping watch over an imprisoned foreign missionary. We would certainly expect that imprisoning the apostle to the Gentiles would serve to hinder the advance of the gospel, but God's ways are not our ways. As Joseph explained to his brothers who sold him into slavery in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. God purposed it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had become the second most powerful man in the world's greatest superpower, put there by God through his brother's evil actions that brought Joseph's suffering, so that Joseph could then see to the welfare of his family and his people during a time of great famine. Well, so too, God was in control and at work through Paul's imprisonment. So too, God is in control and at work through any set of circumstances that we face even when we can't explain what good he could possibly be bringing about from those circumstances and through our presence in them. But who could have imagined that God would save the world, not by raising up a new king who would conquer the nations, but by God the Son taking on human flesh and being born of a helpless baby? Who could have imagined that the victory would come, not by the Savior riding in on a great war horse with a sword and shield in his hands, But by the Savior being hung on a tree to to die, nails piercing those hands. God delights to achieve His good purposes through what looks like failure. At the cross, God proved that His ways are not our ways. And thus, at the cross, God proved that we can trust Him even when we don't understand what He's doing. Contentment can be found in any and every circumstance when we trust that God is at work in each and every circumstance. Contentment can be found in each and every circumstance when we trust that God is at work in those circumstances. When we look to Him for deep soul satisfaction rather than looking to our circumstances. When we seek for the supernatural strength to glorify Him in those circumstances. This is what Paul had learned. And remember who he's writing to. At the end of chapter 1, he describes the Philippians as suffering the same kind of persecution that put him in prison. In chapter 3, he addresses the, the opposition that the Philippians are facing from false teachers who are rising up within the churches of that day. At the beginning of chapter 4, he addresses conflict within their specific church, calling out two women by name. And when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 about the churches in that region in Macedonia, giving financially despite being in extreme poverty, it appears that this includes the church in Philippi, if not primarily referring to the church in Philippi. So persecution from those in power, opposition from other so-called Christians, internal conflict causing disunity and extreme poverty. And yet Paul speaks to them about having contentment in any and every circumstance. If Paul could find contentment while in chains for the gospel, there's life on the line. And if contentment was possible for the Philippians, given what they were facing, well, so too, contentment is possible for each one of us, even when good, godly desires go unmet. Let us pray. Father, we, we desire to be contented people. Let it be that our hearts and our lives would increasingly be marked by Contentment. That we could say with Paul as he wrote to Timothy near the end of his life, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Help us to trust that you are at work in each and every circumstance that you set before us according to your good designs and purposes. Help us to treasure and be satisfied by our relationship with you above all the pleasures this world can offer. And as your servants, Grant us the strength to glorify you in every circumstance, even when we don't know what you're doing. Bless the preaching of your word. In and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.